following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. I'd like to begin by reading the chapter in its entirety. However, for the sake of capturing the chapter in context, I'd like to begin reading from chapter 11 and verse 28. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what it is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. 
I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, and the, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother 
and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Grace Community Church, these are the words of the Son of God. Thanks be to God. What is it that lies at the heart of biblical and historical Christianity? Is it its morals and ethics? Is it its great, glorious doctrines, election, effectual calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification? Well, it's true that each of these glorious doctrines shine like the bright stars in the night sky. It's undeniable. And it's true that the morals and ethics of Christianity have had a tremendous impact on the world. But as precious as these doctrines, morals, and ethics are, they are not ultimately what gives the Christianity of the Bible its luster and radiance the radiance with which it shines. The luster, radiance, and brightness of Christianity comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is all about Christ. It's all about Christ. It was Thomas Adams who said, this Jesus is the center of the whole of Scripture. The sum of theology is the Scripture. The sum of the scripture is the gospel. The sum of the gospel is Jesus Christ. He went on to say, this blessed Christ is the sole paragon of our joy, the fountain of life, the foundation of all blessedness. The sum of the whole Bible prophesied, typified, prefigured, exhibited, demonstrated to be found in every leaf, almost in every line. The scriptures being but, as it were, the swaddling bands of the child Jesus. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Samson, David were all renowned, but Christ is the main, the center whither all these lines are referred. They were all his forerunners to prepare his way. John the Baptist was the morning star to signify the sun's approaching. What gives each of these doctrines that I mentioned earlier their beauty is their connection to Christ. We are chosen in Christ. We are effectually called to Christ. We are regenerated and made alive in Christ. We are converted to Christ. We are justified in Christ. We are adopted through Christ. We are sanctified by Christ. And when we are finally glorified on that last day, we will be glorified with Christ, Romans eight seventeen. As Michael Reeves put it, the center, the cornerstone, the jewel in the crown of Christianity is not an idea, a system, or a thing. It is not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ. The message of the entire Bible revolves around him. The Old Testament promises him. In the four Gospels, 
he is announced. In the book of Acts, he is proclaimed. In the epistles, he is explained. And in the book of Revelation, he is reigning and returning. It's all about him. And as we return this morning to the gospel according to Matthew, we come face to face with the most magnificent person to ever walk this earth and breathe the air that we breathe. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the incarnate word of God. He is the spotless lamb of God. He is the eternal son of God. And he is the embodiment of the very love and power of God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. And Matthew, being one of his hand-picked apostles, writes this gospel narrative in order to bring his readers face-to-face with Jesus Christ, his saving grace and his redeeming mercy. In the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, we find their prophecies or their divinely given messages being referred to as oracles. The oracle concerning Babylon, the oracle concerning Moab, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. In Hebrew, it can mean a literal weight, something heavy. And the idea in the prophets is that what they had was a heavy message to deliver to the people. And oftentimes this message, this oracle, this Burden was a burden of coming judgment. Well, if we were to carry over that idea into the New Testament, and if Matthew were to employ this language of the oracle of God or the burden of the Lord, he would say that his burden is to present Jesus of Nazareth as the long-awaited son of David and highly anticipated offspring of Abraham who came to bless the nations of the earth with life and salvation. That's why he begins his gospel with the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's message is that the wait is over. The time is fulfilled. The dark night of Satan's unchallenged reign is over. The king and his kingdom have arrived. And although his kingdom hasn't come in all of its creation renewing fullness, it is here. It has been inaugurated. It will expand. It will spread. And one day when the king returns a second time, his kingdom will be consummated. And as we come to Matthew 12 this morning, Matthew again, and as always, brings us face to face with the king. Only this time we see the king in the midst of conflict and controversy. We've seen him clash with Israel's religious leaders here and there in chapter 9. But here in chapter 12, we see this tension rise to a whole new level. The Pharisees, a group of Jewish religious leaders who were dedicated to the strict observance of the law of Moses, now take their hatred for Jesus to the level of beginning to conspire against him and how they might destroy him. So it's heating up. They want him gone. But the problem they're having is that the people seem to love him. The crowds are flocking to him. And he's healing, as Matthew has told us, he's healing every disease among the people. There's not a single disease that he has not healed. 
They're listening to him. They're being healed by him. But what's sad is that Jesus knows behind all of this temporary joy amongst the people that they too will eventually side with the religious leaders and cry out for his execution. Nevertheless, his grace is such that he pours out his life and he pours out his time to heal all who were brought to him, no matter what they're suffering from. The two themes that stand out in the text of Matthew chapter 12 are confrontation and clarification. The theme of confrontation occupies the first 45 verses of the chapter, whereas the theme of clarification occupies the last four verses of the chapter, where Jesus clarifies who really belongs to the family of God. As we make our way through this chapter of confrontation and clarification, Matthew wants us to see the Lord Jesus Christ in light of five glorious titles that he bears. And these five titles will serve as the five main focus areas for our time together this morning in Matthew chapter 12. And for ease of remembrance, each of these five titles begins with the letter S. First, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the Sabbath Lord who came to bring rest and restoration, verses 1 to 14. He is the servant of God who came to give hope to the hopeless, verses 15 to 21. He is the son of David who came to plunder Satan's kingdom, verses 22 to 37. He is the son of man who came to die and rise again, verses 38 through 45. And fifthly, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the son of God who came to define God's family, verses 46 to the end. First of all, let's consider the first title here in verses 1 to 14. Jesus is the Sabbath Lord who came to bring rest and restoration. We saw how Matthew 11 ends with that promise of rest, soul rest, inner rest, rest that brings people peace with God, rest that is promised to those who are bogged down and weighed down and just tired of trying to please God with their works. It's not the labors of our hands that can fulfill the law's demands. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And these two Sabbath controversies that arise here arise in this context of Jesus promising rest. It's interesting how the providence of God operates and aligns events in the universe. At that time, Matthew says, verse 1, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. As soon as we hear those words, it was the Sabbath. That's meant to be Matthew's dun-dun-dun. At first glance, this seems like theft on the part of the disciples. They're going through this grain field, and they're plucking grain and eating it. But I want you to know that the law of Moses allowed for this. We read of this in Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25, where Moses says that if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Prior to that, he talks about going into the neighbor's vineyard, and you can eat your fill of grapes right then and there, 
but you're not to put anything into your bag. In other words, the principle of the Old Testament was just eat what you can eat right then and there. Don't take any for later. Have your fill there. God communicating the reality of and beauty of sharing with your neighbor while he's hungry in that moment. But then verse two, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look or behold, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You will recall that the fourth commandment in Exodus 20 required rest from work. Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, a rest day. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, don't even have people work for you. In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. As we unpack the Old Testament a little bit more, we realize that there was no cooking, no baking, no boiling, no lighting fire, no gathering manna, no gathering wood for the fire, no buying, no selling, no treading the wine press, no carrying a load past the city gates. God wanted his people to rest and to trust in his provision while they rest. The problem here in Matthew 12 is not with the law. The problem is that the rabbis came up with additional rules to keep in order to keep people from coming close to possibly keep breaking the Sabbath. So here's the law and the disciples put miles and miles and miles of barbed wire around that law so as to keep from breaking that law. And eventually they taught that those laws were equivalent to God's law. As we're going to see in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus condemns them for teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They defined work in this extra law that they had, and they broke it down into 39 different categories, 11 of which had to do with growing and processing wheat. So they prohibited sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, separating good grain from bad grain, grinding, sifting, kneading, and baking. And according to the Pharisees, the disciples were guilty of going against three of these categories. Stripping grain from the standing wheat, according to them, was considered both reaping and threshing. And then when they rubbed the grain between their hands to remove the husk from the kernel so they could eat it, they regarded that as winnowing. In their minds, this was worthy of execution. Or the person could offer a sin offering for each of those actions. And so what this would amount to is each disciple would have to offer three different sin offerings, one for reaping, one for threshing, one for winnowing. Well, you'll notice that Jesus now defends these actions by pointing to two Old Testament case studies, a principle from the life of David and a provisionary sacrifice from the book of Numbers, specifically Numbers 28. Look at verse three. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. You see, the bread of the presence in the tabernacle is only for the priests. 
And there was a time in 1 Samuel 21 where Ahimelech, the priest, allowed David and his men to eat the sacred bread in the house of God, which was reserved exclusively for the priests. What we see there is the need of the king and his men superseded these ritual laws. But more than this, Jesus is appealing to this example in order to make a very bold statement. By arguing that Jesus and his disciples could break rabbinic law on the Sabbath because David and his men broke the general custom when they did, implies in a very strong manner that Jesus can do whatever David did. Why? Because Jesus is the son of David, the true and greater David. It almost reminds me of what kids do sometimes. My, my older brother did it, or my dad did it. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. My great, 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 great grandfather did this, and therefore I can do this, because I'm the one that David pointed to. That's just, this is something that Matthew has been hitting on again and again and again. It's in the very first line of Matthew's gospel, the son of David. The second line of defense comes from an example in the Old Testament. Look at verse 5. He says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? You see, everyone stopped working on the Sabbath except for the priests. In fact, we're told that they had to do double duty on that day. But that double duty was the provision for their working on the Sabbath. The priests had to work double duty, but God considered them guiltless as they were doing it. And he appoints more sacrifices to be offered in order to cover the priests. So he's showing that allowances were made. And these allowances showed that the Pharisees, their man-made laws didn't even align with the law of Moses. Well, Jesus says in verse 6, I tell you something greater then the temple is here. In other words, this example I point to where the priests are profaning the temple, profaning the Sabbath, I want you to know something greater than the temple is here. Another staggering statement. In other words, the very presence of the God who made the temple holy is among you. That's what he's saying here. The radiance of God's glory the brightness of God's attributes is here in the flesh. Something greater than the temple is here. Keep an eye on that word throughout this chapter. Greater, greater, a greater David, the greater priest, the greater temple. Something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon is here. He is the very presence of God that made the temple holy. Verse 7, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. This is the second time he's quoted Hosea 6, verse 6, where God emphasizes the desire to express mercy and not the desire to so much receive more sacrifices from his people. He desired the people to show mercy to one another, reflecting God's heart and not be so caught up in just the sacrifice in and of itself. And notice the nail that puts 
puts it all in. Verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, which is a stunning statement because this is a statement, a claim to deity. Because all throughout the Old Testament, in fact, 15 times in the Old Testament, beginning in Exodus and spanning all the way through Ezekiel, God repeatedly calls the Sabbath his Sabbath. My Sabbaths they profaned. My Sabbaths they broke. Fifteen times. My Sabbath. My Sabbath. My Sabbath, Yahweh says. Jesus comes on the scene and says, the Sabbath is mine. He takes this title, the Lord of the Sabbath, and applies it to himself. Jesus' repeated claim. Also, the Son of Man. Notice that there in that verse. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. His repeated claim to be the Son of Man, again, takes us back to that Daniel 7 vision where we see him enthroned next to the Ancient of Days, Yahweh. He's worshipped by the masses there, and he's reigning over people from every nation and language with everlasting sovereignty. But in addition to this, being, him being the Son of Man, he is also Lord of the Sabbath, who has the authority to determine what's allowed on the Sabbath, because he is God. He is infinitely greater than the temple because he is the glory of God that made the temple holy. So these handful of verses here at the beginning of Matthew 12 are some of the most important statements in the Bible concerning who Christ is as the eternal son of God. But the controversy doesn't end there. Not only is Jesus the Sabbath Lord who came to bring rest, but he is the Sabbath Lord who came to bring restoration. Look at these verses, 9 through 14. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, a hand that was paralyzed, limp, lifeless. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So the first Sabbath controversy had to do with the harvesting. This has to do with healing. But that's the key phrase in verse 10. So that they might accuse him. They'll want to trap him now. The tension is escalating. The pressure is escalating. The hatred is escalating. And they want to be able to accuse him. They want to be able to say, this is exactly where he's breaking the law. And here it is. Well, he said to them, verse 11, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Which one of you will leave your animal in a pit on the Sabbath? He knows that none of them would. That all of them would go to the rescue of their animal. And he says, verse 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? The reason they ask him is if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath is because the Mishnah, one of their, again, documents, prohibited giving oral medicine on the Sabbath, mixing medicines, preparing bandages, tying bandages. Even more shockingly, some of the rabbis prohibited inducing vomiting, setting a broken limb, or popping a dislocated joint back into place, or even pouring cold water over the break, or dislocation to reduce swelling and ease the pain. Cutting open an abscess was prohibited. So essentially, they came up with these rules and said, just wait till, wait till Sunday. <laughs> no Tylenol, whatever. No whatever. If you're, if you're some of the sisters in here, no essential oils to make this better. 
They had to wait until the next day. And they want to accuse him now. Jesus says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so he says to the man, verse 13, stretch out your hand. By the way, I always like to point to these examples when my Armenian brother or sister comes along and says, well, why would God command the impossible if they can't do it? Because it puts God's power on display. We say in our evangelism to dead sinners, come out of your tomb and look to Christ and trust in Christ. Jesus says to the man with a withered hand who can't even move it, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored. He's the Sabbath Lord who came to bring restoration. Healthy like the other, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. You just see throughout the whole narrative, their, their hearts are hardening, hardening, hardening. And ultimately, one of the gospel writers tells us that they did this because they were just envious of Jesus. They liked being in the spotlight. They liked being the go-to guru for all things religion and all things Judaism. Jesus was a threat to them. Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah, and they did not even recognize it because their hearts were too hard and their eyes were blind by their own love for self and sin. Well, secondly... Jesus is not only the Sabbath Lord who came to bring rest and restoration, but he is the servant of God who came to give hope to the hopeless. Verses 15 to 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Aware of what? Aware of the fact that they wanted to destroy him. So he's avoiding deeper tension here. He's avoiding further controversy. And many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. In other words, he wanted, he, he still has a few years left of ministry. He doesn't want a premature escalation and a premature trial and all this. He's saying, don't say anything to anyone. And he's just going. But obviously, news like this just cannot spread. It's spreading like wildfire. There's a man from Nazareth who's, who's, who's opposing the Pharisees, putting them in their place. And walking away blameless, they can't even lay a finger on him. They can't even accuse him. They lay traps for him, and he escapes flawlessly, wondrously. And the crowds are following him still, but he's telling them not to make him known. Well, this withdrawal from the heat is in fulfillment of Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. That's what Isaiah says. This was to fulfill something. Verse 18, behold, this is the first of four servant songs in the prophecy of Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah where God says, behold, my servant whom I have chosen. Jesus is the chosen servant of Yahweh who will carry Yahweh's plan of redemption and restoration from the fall into its culmination in a new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. He is God's appointed servant to die for the sins of his people, rise for their justification, and bring all things back to Eden, as it were. He is his chosen servant. He is my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. We look at Jesus and we see all of God's good pleasure, God's satisfaction and delight. God says, I will put my spirit upon him. 
and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So again, we have in Isaiah promises that this coming one, this coming son of David, this coming son of Abraham, this coming Messiah will minister to the Gentiles and expand beyond the borders of Israel eventually. And notice verse 19, which is a picture of why he's escaping this heated controversy. He will not quarrel. He's not going to fight. He's not going to cry aloud in the streets. No one's going to hear his voice. In other words, in his ministry, and I say this because there will be a time when all creation will hear his voice roar like a lion on the day of judgment. But in his ministry, as he's come as a servant to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, he's not going to be with this querulous figure, crying aloud, fighting with people in the streets. You're not even going to hear his voice in that manner. He says in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, which draws our attention to the gentleness of Christ. A bruised reed, in other words, a a reed that's at the point of breaking, he's not going to break it. Which could have application, by the way, in two directions, meaning these enemies who want to destroy him, they're like a bruised reed in his hand. He could easily snap them if he wanted to. They're like a smoldering wick in his presence, and all he, could, all he has to do is just snuff it out. But also has refer- reference, I think, to the weakness of his people, the frailty of some of the people he encounters, some of the frail women that he heals, the helpless men that he restores. They're at the end of themselves. They're about to break, and he will not break them. They're about to be put out. The flame is about to be put out, but he doesn't. He doesn't quench them. Notice, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. In other words, until the very end, Jesus will be gentle with his people, not unleash his wrath upon his enemies until the day he brings justice to victory. What is this referring to? It's referring to the time when justice is brought to victory, when righteousness reigns in creation again. When, G- when Peter spoke of the new heavens and the new earth, he says it's a place where righteousness or justice dwells. I want you to know, friends, that this morning, our hope is in someone who will bring the justice we long for to certain victory. We go through this life moaning and groaning because we hear of cases of people being let go who should be incarcerated. We hear of people who seem to get off the hook in court when we know they are guilty, when the evidence proves that they are guilty. We hear of human trafficking that involves children, and we say, how can God let this happen? Well, friends, the day is coming when the son of David will bring justice to victory, and his enemies will cry under the mountains, begging the mountains to bury them, to hide them from his face. Verse 21 is beautiful. He is the servant of God who came to give hope to the hopeless. Notice this. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. That's us. Praise God that he would be the hope, the long anticipation, the expectation of his people. Our hope is in him today. If you're a believer, where is your hope this morning? Is your hope in this one, this gentle one, this sovereign one, this 
one who brings rest and restoration. One of the reasons we gather again and again and again on Sundays is to be brought back, bent back in the shape by the chiropractic power of God's word to make sure that we leave this place with our hope set on him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, thirdly, he wants us to see that Jesus is the son of David who came to plunder Satan's kingdom, verses 22 through 37. Verse 22 says, Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. This man couldn't talk. He couldn't see. It's interesting when you read the cases of demon-possessed individuals. Demons have the power to deaden a live person. To stop their hands from moving. Prevent their eyes from seeing prevent their mouths from talking. Isn't it interesting that when we look to the Old Testament, the idols of man are portrayed as they have eyes, but they cannot see. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Those who worship idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. And yet what do demons do when they inhabit a person? They give people mouths that cannot speak, eyes that cannot see, hands that cannot feel. And all the people were amazed because, look, it says that he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? There's this chatter amongst the crowd. Can this really be the son of David? This is Matthew's way of saying, this is the son of David. When the people are crying out in suspicion, this is Matthew's bold assertion that this is exactly who he is. But when the Pharisees heard it, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, And by the way, this is not them saying anything to Jesus. You'll notice they are saying it among themselves. By the way, they laid this same charge on Jesus back in Matthew chapter nine. If you remember, they heard it and they said it is only only by Beelzebul. The prince of demons that this man casts out demons Beelzebul is probably the transliteration of a title for the Canaanite god Baal, meaning the Lord of the Dominion. They're basically saying that Jesus is doing this by the power of Satan. Jesus is in league with Satan here in order to try to make a name for himself. Jesus is in communication with Satan saying, Satan, just let me do this. Bring, bring, your, bring, your, bring, your, bring your guy out of this man and we'll say it's me. That's what they're accusing him of is he's using Satan's power to bring out Satan's demons. That's how he's doing it. But notice verse 25, knowing their thoughts, knowing their thoughts as the omniscient God who tests the minds and knows the hearts. He knows their thoughts. Another evidence that this Jesus of Nazareth, this Son of God is God the Son, the omniscient one, the all-knowing one. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, and this is his explanation as to why their charge is so absolutely ridiculous and absurd. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No kingdom will stand. We saw that literally in the history of Israel. A divided kingdom meant a destroyed kingdom. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. 
Verse 26, and if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? You see, this is interesting because the Pharisees were basically indicting themselves. Matthew Corll states, the Pharisees were well known for their detailed demonology and for their claims to cast out demons. Josephus describes the methods of one of their exorcists, Eleazar, who used formulas and a ring that was forged with a magic root inside it to cast out demons. The approach to exorcism utilized by the Pharisees far more closely resembled sorcery than Jesus' simple but powerful command. So they had all these methods that the people considered borderline demonic, if not demonic themselves. Jesus is not doing any of these things. He's just saying, come out of the man. His powerful word says, be healed, and he's healed. He's not using any roots and magic and formulas. He's not doing any of that. And so he says, if I'm doing this by the power of Satan, what do you have to say about your sons who are all into these, you know, magic roots and all of these things? You're indicting yourselves. Verse, he, he concludes verse 27 by saying, they, therefore they will be your judges. Look to them. Verse 28, but if it is by the power of, sorry, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is where the source of his ministry and healing and power is. The spirit of God, which points us back to Isaiah's servant song. Behold, my chosen servant in whom I delight, I will put my spirit upon him. And it's this spirit that empowers him throughout all of his ministry. We see the spirit descend upon him like a dove in the Jordan River. We see the spirit empowering him through all of his life and ministry. We even see, according to Hebrews chapter 9, Jesus, by the spirit of God, offering offering himself up to God as a sacrifice for sin. So the spirit present at every major milestone in the Messiah's life. He says, if it's by the spirit of God that I'm doing this, then I want you to know something. The kingdom of God has come upon you. If you have been tracing our exposure to the kingdom of God in Matthew, this is one of the high points. Because in the beginning, what was proclaimed? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's about to break forth. It's it's, it's, it's right there. Jesus then three times, Matthew 4, Matthew 24, I believe it's Matthew 9, Jesus proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel good news of the kingdom. He taught us to pray in Matthew 6, your kingdom come. But Jesus now draws draws our attention to the fact that the kingdom of God has come upon that first generation. In other words, the kingdom is here because the king has arrived. The king and his kingdom, that's what Matthew is all about. The kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, God's reign amongst men and women that breaks people out of Satan's kingdom, rescues them, regenerates them, and renovates their lives. That kingdom, that rule of God, that saving rule, that redeeming rule, 
That reconciling, transforming rule and reign has broken into the sons of men. It's come upon you. Jesus says the kingdom is here because I'm here. Verse 29, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And so notice that the the interchange of words here, the the synonyms here, house, kingdom, house, kingdom, house, kingdom. Remember, every kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. The picture that he gives here is that Jesus enters a strong man's house, binds him, and then begins to plunder his goods. What's the picture of here? Jesus enters Satan's kingdom, binds him, renders him helpless in order to rescue people who are slaves to sin and Satan. That's what he's doing here. Then indeed he may plunder his house. That's what he just did with this demon-possessed man. He's been in Satan's house for who knows how long. Jesus shows up literally on the scene, renders the demonic powerless, ties the demon up in a chair, so to speak, and that demon can do nothing but watch Jesus take this plunder, take this man out of his house. And by the way, on a bigger redemptive scale, this is exactly the picture of our salvation. Colossians chapter 1, we give thanks to God the Father who has qualified us to partake in the kingdom, but it also says that he has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So literally, the tale of all redemptive history is the tale of two kingdoms, the kingdom of Satan, into which falls the kingdom of man, and the kingdom of God, ruled by the king the Lord Jesus Christ. And anyone who enters this kingdom is plunder from the other kingdom, is booty, to use the old word, from the one kingdom. You were plundered. That's what you were. You, 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 were, you were taken from Satan's kingdom and brought into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've gone from serving one king to serving forever the true king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is the son of David who came to plunder Satan's kingdom and build God's kingdom. He says in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. He says, you're either with me on this or you're against me. There's no neutral ground. And the same is true today. There is no neutral ground. You're either with Jesus or you are against Jesus. Please hear me out. Every single one of you, you are either with him, loyal to him, growing in your love for him, or you are against him. You might say, I'm indifferent. That's against him. I'm not, I'm not, I I, I think he's a great guy. You're against him. Because the only way to be for him is to follow him. The only way to prove that you are for him is in laying down your life and laying your soul into his hands. It's been said that we do not truly love Jesus above all if we do not love him with our all. Therefore, I tell you, verse 31, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. The implication is when they repent and when they believe upon Christ, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. We saw it in the life of Peter. Paul. They slandered the Lord Jesus. They they said, I don't even know the man. That's what Peter said. They were forgiven. 
But notice the last line. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Notice that the blasphemy against the Son is forgivable. Because the avenue to forgiveness is repentance. Jesus commands repentance. You repent and you're forgiven. No matter what you've spoken against them, you are forgiven. But he says the blasphemy against the Spirit of God is unforgivable because the avenue to forgiveness is rejected. Hear me out here. The blasphemy against the Spirit is unforgivable Unforgivable because the avenue of forgiveness is rejected. What's the avenue to forgiveness? The Spirit of God who convicts the world of sin, points them to Christ, testifies of Christ as the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David. He's the one you need. The Spirit, Jesus said, when He comes, He will glorify me. And so the Spirit of God, ever since these days, has been pointing people to Christ. That inner voice giving people the, 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 the knowledge and understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. He's worthy of your soul's trust and loyalty. He's worthy of you fleeing every sin to fall upon His merit and His mercy. Trust in Him. Call upon His name. That's what the Spirit does. That's the voice of the Spirit. But to blaspheme the Spirit? To continually reject that voice, that ministry? Receives no forgiveness. They had seen Jesus heal every kind of disease, cast out every kind of demon... Forgive every kind, every kind of sin. And yet they chose to charge him with deceit and demonism. You see, the way they slandered him, specifically, was set by saying, that's not the spirit of God's work, that's Satan's work in him. There's the slander. There's the blasphemy. Blasphemy means slander, accusing, disrespect. They were saying that Jesus was doing these things by the power of Satan, when in fact it was the spirit of God. They were so hardened. Now, how does, this look, how does this look today? Well, we, we should note two things today. We must avoid labeling anyone today as guilty of this unforgivable sin because we truly don't know if they've fully come to the point of complete hard-heartedness in opposing the Spirit's ministry and message. We just don't know that. God knows when a person is at a point of no return. We don't know that. And so we continue to pray. We continue to evangelize. We continue to share the gospel because we don't know if someone is truly dead set on rejecting the message and ministry of the Holy Spirit, pointing them to the gospel. And we must also realize that the unforgivable sin is primarily a sin in the heart, not the lips. So again, it doesn't matter what a person says with their lips. The sin is actually committed in the heart, that continual, ongoing rejection of the Spirit of God all the way to the end, that is the unforgivable sin. Let's make it clear this morning. What is the unforgivable sin? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that receives no forgiveness either in this age or in the age to come? It is the ongoing, perpetual, hard-hearted, impenitent rejection of the Spirit's ministry in pointing people to salvation in Christ alone. Moving on. He teaches us also. Verse 33, notice this. By the way, if there's one place in the Bible where I just despise the, chap, the, the 
paragraph or titles that are above the paragraphs, it's this chapter because it makes it seem like what's happening here is a bunch of random little occasions. It's all one flow of events. Verse 33, he says to them, either make the tree good and its fruit good and make the tree bad or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruits. In other words, you water that tree, you tend to that tree, you prune it, you do good to that tree, and that tree's going to produce good fruit. But if you make the tree bad, if you cut off its water, if you don't pay attention to it, if you neglect it, its fruit is going to be bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. And he says, you brood of vipers, I'm talking about you. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good? How can the fruit of your lips be good when you are evil? At the heart of what you are is an evil tree. Therefore, you can only produce evil fruit. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Some of you have an instant pot, right? And you, you, you know when that thing is, 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 is pressurized and that you, you turn that little lid and it just it lets off all that air. That's the mouth for the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth utters words. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Because you can only produce what you are. If you're a depraved sinner, dead in your sin, the only thing you can produce are dead works. But if you are alive in Christ and you have a new heart, you can and must and will produce goodness to the glory of God. Verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, People will give an account for every careless word you speak. See where he's getting at? You're speaking against the Spirit of God. Working through my life and ministry and healings. And you're saying that it's the, it's, it's the power of Satan. You're going to give an account for this. You, you keep going in this hard-heartedness. You're going you're to give an account for this. Sometimes we use this to kind of threaten people. You know, you're going to have to give an account for every idle word, every careless word. The careless word that's spoken here, the worthless word literally in, in, the, in the Greek, the worthless word you speak, the worthless word, the worthless word that is spoken is the word they're speaking against Jesus, against the ministry of the Spirit. So it's not necessarily that you're going to get in trouble for every time you said, ah, oh, dude. You know, people will say, well, that's a worthless word. That's just a, 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 a vain utterance. The context is their slandering of the Spirit of God working through the life and ministry of Jesus. He says, you're going to have to give an account for your words that are coming forth from your evil heart like the evil fruit in that, from that evil tree. Verse 37, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. In other words, when you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be justified. Why? Because the words come from the heart where there is faith in Jesus. But by your words also, you will be condemned because they will show the true state of your heart and whether you believe or not. And in this case, not. Well, Jesus is not only the son of David who came to plunder Satan's kingdom, but fourthly, he wants us to see that Jesus is the son of man who came to die and rise again. Look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. After all the healing, after all the exorcism, 
They say, we want to see a sign from you. Show us something miraculous that points to the fact that you really are from God. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. What an interesting phrase. An adulterous generation of people who have turned their back on God as their true husband and have turned to themselves and their sin as their ultimate lover. An adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, which takes us back, obviously, to the book of Jonah. They teach this in Sunday school. They teach us in children's ministry. Some of our children's books have this story of Jonah. Resisting God, God appoints this fish to swallow him, and he spends three days, three nights there. The fish, you know, spits him out, and Jonah goes and does what God wants him to do. He says, verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And someone might say, I think this is an error here. It wasn't three full days and three full nights. Well, that's how the Jews spoke. They considered any part of the day as a full day. He's going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, which assumes two things. He dies, goes into the tomb, and then he emerges from that tomb alive because Jonah emerged alive. In fact, Jonah's experience of being spit out of the mouth is referred to as a resurrection, a type of resurrection, because it ultimately pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ and being three days in the heart of the earth, the tomb. He says, verse 41, the men of Nineveh, that is, the people to whom Jonah preached, will rise up at the judgment on the last day with this generation, and they will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In other words, he takes the lesser to the greater. He says, if only you could see that last day of judgment. The men of Nineveh, that wicked, vast, godless nation who repented when Jonah called them to repent. And Jonah was this imperfect man who complained about everything, it seems like. If they repented at his ministry, he says, I guarantee you that they're going to rise up on the judgment day. And it's like a courtroom scene where you have the jury in the background, just, you know, as some jury were witnesses saying, we saw you, you had the chance. You had the, the opportunity. That's the idea. We preached, we, we, we repented at this, 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 this crazy guy from, from, from you know, Jonah. We, we, we repented. You guys had the very word of God himself. Jonah preached the word of the Lord. Jesus was the word of the Lord and is the word of God. He says, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What is that? Well, the greater prophet, the greater messenger, the word of God, God, the word. He points to another example, verse 42, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment. This woman you can read about in first Kings chapter 10, she traveled far to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And he says, this woman as well will rise up at the judgment with this generation and she will condemn it. She will say, rightly are you to be condemned. 
He says, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, he says, something greater than Solomon is here. Again, this is like the third statement. He's, he's, third time he's talked about this greater, greater, greater. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. The very wisdom of God himself. Paul says, we preach Christ, the wisdom of God. When we think of Solomon, we think of God's wisdom. In Jesus, we have something greater than Solomon, the embodiment of divine wisdom itself. Like Jonah, he is the greater prophet. Like Solomon, he is the greater king. He says, verse 43, as he now illustrates their evil and the fact that it's going to be worse off for them in the end, we come to this short illustration Verse 43, when the unclean spirit, again, this is not a separate event here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds no home. So the home, find, the, the home is equivalent here, as we're going to see, to the individual, the, the formerly demon-possessed person. Then it says, I will return to my house, that individual from which I came. And Jesus says, when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. There's a vacancy sign on it, in other words. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And here's the point of this whole thing. The last state of the person is worse than the first. Jesus is not connecting this to the man that just had the demon exercise out of him. It's not what he's doing. Because look at the last sentence. So also will it be with this evil generation. That's the point. He says, just as it is when a demon-possessed person gets refilled, as it were, reoccupied with the demonic, and how that person is worse than before, so also will it be with this evil generation that's seeking signs in their hard-heartedness, rejecting me and the message of the Spirit. You will be worse than the first, which is consistent with what Peter says, right? Those who come face to face with such truth and reality, it's going to be worse for them in the end. Because to whom much is given of them, much will be required. He's highlighting their privilege here. He's highlighting the honor they've been given. The word of God incarnate has come upon them. The kingdom of God. They, have, they, they were the first generation to see the inbreaking of God's rule and reign among men and women, and they're rejecting it. He says, no wonder the last state with this generation will be worse than the first. Well, lastly, Matthew wants us to see in the closing verses that Jesus is the son of David who came to define God's family. Sorry, the son of God, the son of God who came to define God's family. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother's, sorry, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. I think what we find here is a kind of relief, right? As readers, we're like, oh, finally, safe place. The controversy's done. The drama is over. After all, he's in the presence of Mary and his brothers. We're amongst family here. As some people say, we're family here. And they want to speak to him. 
Apparently this was either some kind of house, most commentators believe, or some kind of big building. But verse 48, but he replied to the man, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Enter the drama again. Enter the tension again. Verse 49, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, does the will of my father, that's why I called this point, he is the son of God who defines God's family. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is our older brother. All who do the will of God, what is the will of God? To believe upon the one whom he has sent. Right? John chapter 6. What is the will of God according to Jesus? That you believe upon him whom God has sent. Everything else will fall into place. You trust him. You throw yourself upon him. You throw yourself upon him to rest in him as the Sabbath Lord who came to bring rest and restoration. You trust in him as a servant of God who came to bring hope to the hopeless. You trust in him as the son of David who came to plunder Satan's kingdom and build God's kingdom. You believe upon him who, as the son of man, came to die and rise again. And you believe upon him as the son of God who came to define God's family. And you will be saved. All will be well with your soul. And you can sing with the the hymn writer, It is well with my soul. What does this chapter mean for us this morning? I think it means that, and I think the overall message is that Jesus is everything Scripture says he is, which means that he is everything Scripture says you need. And so trust in him this morning. Believe upon him this morning. As the Lord of the Sabbath, he is the rest and restoration that your soul needs. As the something greater than the temple, he is the radiant presence of God that you were made to know and be satisfied in. As the spirit-empowered servant of Yahweh, he will bring justice to victory, the justice that you long for, and he is your hope this morning. As the son of David, he is the king who can deliver you from the tyranny and slavery of Satan's kingdom and transfer you into his kingdom of peace, righteousness, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. And as the son of man, his death brings sinners to God and his resurrection after three days in the earth guarantees your justification and your coming resurrection with him. And as the son of God, his work of redemption makes adoption into God's family a reality for orphans and exiles like ourselves. Those who do the will of God are brought into the family of God through faith in the Son of God, who is the radiance of the glory of God. Father, we pray this morning that our souls would be found in Christ, that our hearts' trust would be in him. We thank you for this Sabbath Lord, this servant of God, this son of David, this son of man, this son of God. May our affections rightly reflect his worth his beauty, his greatness, his magnificence, his matchless holiness. Work in the hearts of those who hear your word today for your glory and for their full and lasting joy in you. Amen.